Steve Taylor is a senior lecturer in psychology, is the author of numerous best-selling books on psychology and spirituality, and writes articles for Scientific American and Psychology Today. Eckhart Tolle has described Steve's work as an important contribution to the shift in consciousness which is happening on our planet at present. His most recent book, Disconnected, The Roots of Human Cruelty and How Connection Can Heal the World, is much needed right now during these difficult times that we're facing, and I strongly encourage you to read it. As always, we've taken the time to create timestamps, which can be found in the description below. So, Steve, to start us off, can you tell me a little bit about your background and about your research interests, please? My, my area of research is in transpersonal psychology, which is basically spiritual psychology. It's the study mm -hmm. of spiritual experiences, of spiritual transformation, of spiritual traditions. So yeah. I've always been a, a spiritual person in, in my sort of personal life. I've always followed spiritual practices and spiritual paths and had spiritual experiences. Mm -hmm. So in my research, I try to study those, uh, that field, that area from a, from an academic perspective. And I've written a number of books about those, um, about my research. And I'm also, um, I'm a poet. I write spiritual poetry, which kind of stems from my own spiritual experiences. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, have you, you said you've always been into, into like the spiritual side of things and, and open to these kind of things. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, even before I knew what spirituality was, I was probably, you know, uh, interested in spirituality, but it was only when I was a bit older, when I was probably in my early twenties that I realized that there was a thing called spirituality and there was a thing called mysticism before yeah. then I had sort of what I recognize now were probably spiritual experiences, but at the time I didn't understand them. Yeah, I, you know, I thought there was, there was maybe something wrong with me. I was maybe a bit crazy, but yeah. later, later on, a few years later, oh, well, maybe I'm not crazy after all. You know, other people have had these experiences, other people have studied these experiences, and so you know, it was, it was a great relief actually when I found that there was this thing called mysticism and this thing mm. called spirituality. It gave yeah. me a kind of a framework to understand myself and realized you weren't going crazy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And and then at what point did you decide you wanted to go into the route of like uh, teaching psychology or, or lecturing in psychology and, and working in those areas? Uh, it was uh, it was many years later, actually, because uh, at that time I was a musician and my, my main aim was just to avoid any kind of employment. And, you know, sort of, I, I wanted to live on the fringes of society and just avoid kind of conventional life as long as I could, yeah. which I managed to do for a long time <laughs> until I was about 37. I decided to to go back to university and, and, and st I mean, during that time, my, my, my other aim besides, besides being a musician, I, I wanted to be a writer. So I always right. wrote stories and poetry and, and novels, but to, by the time I was about 30, I thought, Hmm, well, maybe I should write, maybe I should bring together my interest in spirituality with my writing. So I began to write about spirituality and about psychology mm -hmm. and published a couple of books um, around that time. But when I was 37, I realized that, you know, um, the, I became aware that there was a field called transpersonal psychology, um, which I'd never known about before. And I thought, when I heard about it, I thought, wow, this is me. This is where I belong. This is what I want to do. So I decided mm -hmm. to go back to university to do a master's degree in, in transpersonal psychology, which led to a PhD, and which led to my position at my university now and my research. Yeah. And you said transpersonal psychology is kind of spiritual psychology, right? So how, yeah. how would you define transpersonal psychology without, you know, using that, the term spiritual psychology? What, what does it mean exactly? What is it? Well, literally, it means uh, transpersonal literally means beyond the self or beyond the ego. Mm -hmm. So it means the investigation of, of that realm of realms of consciousness or states of being that are beyond the ego. 
Yeah. So higher states of consciousness, they're sometimes called mystical experiences, but also transpersonal psychology investigates, you know, the transformational journey from what we could call a normal state of consciousness towards a, towards a more expansive state of consciousness. So investigates, you know, how we can, you know, how we can go about transforming ourselves, how we can go about expanding our awareness and connecting more powerfully to other people to to nature to the to the whole cosmos yeah it does sound really interesting it, it sounds fascinating so i guess a, a part of your the, the stuff you teach and the stuff that's involved is spiritual awakenings and i guess meditation and and all that kind of stuff plays its part yeah definitely yeah i mean i also teach um the psychology of well-being positive psychology you know what is human well-being how can we cultivate well-being but that's that's strongly connected with transpersonal psychology because um, as soon as we go beyond the normal self or the normal human state of being, we move towards well-being. I, th- I think the normal state of the, the normal human state is one of discord and, and suffering. So we need to expand our awareness. We need to transcend our normal state in order to to find well-being. Mm. Fascinating. Today, I really want to talk about your most recent book in in some detail. So I've got it here disconnected um the roots of human cruelty and how we can how we can he- how connection can heal the world sorry I, I stumbled over my words there disconnected the roots of human cruelty and how connection can heal the world which yeah it's a fascinating read i finished it really recently and i had about like 80 questions i think for you after re- after reading it so i've had to kind of narrow those down a little bit but to, to start off how and when did you decide to write that book what was the the motivation for that um it, it wasn't really a conscious process. I, I often find that with books that so they they're not really. I don't really make a conscious decision to write a book. They mm-hmm. they sort of grow slowly over a number of years, and eventually that they're, they're ready to to take form. I'm ready to to enable them to take form to start writing them. But it, it kind of grew over a number of years. I was I was writing um, articles about political issues, which I don't normally do, but I became interested in political issues. Yeah, maybe five or six years ago, maybe for 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 observing the current political scene and connecting with psychology. Basically, I be, I became aware of the link between pathology and politics. How many politicians are actually kind of psychologically disordered people, you know, with a strong desire for power, a strong desire for for dominance, for wealth, for fame and attention. Yeah, uh, with traits of like self delusion and. Um, other malevolent traits, such as uh, the desire to exploit and deceive people. So, you know, I, I, that, that led me to start thinking about democracy and, you know, what is wrong with our kind of dem- democratic political systems and why it's so easy for those kind of people to take power. Mm. And, and, the, but, and it, it seems as though that's, you know, not connected to spirituality at all. But, you know, the way I see it is that when we look into the people who I call disconnected or hyper disconnected people, the, the kind of people I was just talking about who have a strong desire for power, who live in a state of narcissism and even have psych- psychopathic traits, they're they're really the polar opposite of, of spiritual people. You know, spir- spirituality is all about altruism and compassion and empathy, whereas disconnected people have the opposite of those traits. They are malevolent. They have no empathy. Um, they they live in a state of self-absorption and selfishness. So I, I really began to opposite to to investigate the polar opposite of spirituality. In order to try to, I think my main, my main my main motivation was to try to understand human nature. 
because one of the interesting things about human beings is that we we cover such a wide spectrum of behavior yeah. and character you know we, we we are some human beings are psychopaths some human beings are saints and mystics and yeah. there's a lot of middle ground where most human beings are probably somewhere in the middle that always makes me think just to quickly jump in it always makes me think about how when somebody does something really bad we we kind of go oh, it's human nature you know when somebody yeah. does something really good human nature <laughs> yeah it, the, it goes both ways yeah that's true it's, it's amazing really that human human nature covers this incredibly wide spectrum yeah um so i guess i wanted to understand that spectrum and to you know to understand good and evil yeah yeah that's uh that's that's quite a way of saying it. you're right though um we have it all on display here so can you explain to people that are, are unaware what exactly you mean when you say connected and disconnected like just to give a basis for for kind of the bulk of this conversation so people yeah know what we're talking about when i use the term disconnected it mainly means uh, people it mainly refers to people who uh, completely lack empathy you know they have no empathic connection to other people at all mm. other human beings are simply objects to them because they can't sense their feelings or emotions they can't sense suffering the other people's suffering because they're completely enclosed in, the, in themselves. Mm. They live in a, a state of extreme separation. That, that also means that the world, they live in a state of separation to the world as well. So the world is a slightly unreal place to them. It's a kind of hazy, pale, shadowy place, mm. which, you know, and that's why they're one of the traits of disconnected people is self-delusion. Yeah. Because the world's kind of unreal to, for them, to them. So it's easy for them to convince themselves that what happens in the world is you know, is, is the same as what they want to happen, you know, so that they can sort of, they can distort reality to fit their desires and, and, the, and their thoughts. And conversely, connected people, the main trait of connected people, as I use the term, is empathy. They have a, a strong empathic connection to, to other human beings, uh, to other living beings and to nature as a whole. So they, rather than living in separation, they live in a, in a state of participation, in a, in a state of shared experience with others. And hyper disconnected and hyper connected would just be very extreme examples of those two things, right? Yeah, I mean, hyper disconnected people, they uh, they often become hardcore criminals, violent criminals, even serial killers. You know, serial mm -hmm. killers. The main trait of serial killers is that they have no sense of the value of other people's existence. Other people are literally just machines to them because yeah. they have no empathic connection. So that's what enables them to kill people in a sort of cold, calculated way. But hyper-disconnected people, they can also become politicians, unfortunately. You know, many leading politicians in the world have very strong psychopathic, narcissistic traits. Mm. Um, and, you know, historically, so many political leaders have been, you know, psych psychopaths. You know, in the 20th century, you know, it was, it was quite common for political leaders to be psychopathic around the world. So certainly in the late 20th century, when we look at you know the world as a whole, probably most governments in the world were led by uh, people with psychopathic traits. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, th there's a strong connection between um, uh, hyper disconnected people and the corporate world. A lot of people in high status corporate positions, HEOs or CEOs, also have psychopathic traits. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it does all make sense, you know. Once uh, after reading your book, and again, it it just kind of seems logical. The we it's no it's no surprise that we have so many bad people in politics, and so many people that 
get high in the business world or, or, or get far in the business world uh yeah incredibly difficult people and and you know it's that classic cliche mm. of the the horrible boss and the the, the boss that doesn't care because i suppose that happens as well in not so much in in big corporations and in politics but just in your your, your normal small oh, yeah. company in a village it's like the disconnected person is just going to rise to the top of that company and just sit there as the day manager every day and just oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it happens in uh, like local councils. Mm. You know, the, a lot of people who are who feel impelled to to become councillors. Yeah, malevolent people with with these kind of traits. Yeah, yeah. and in in any sort of hierarchical organisation, you know, whether it's a, a school or a university, um, whether it's a business. I mean, it obviously, it isn't always the case. I mean, there are some good people in high status positions, but there's there's certainly a, a a strong probability, but certainly these people are more highly represented in these high level positions than they are in the, you know, in the general population. Yeah. Yeah. This, this could be a difficult question to answer just because it's, you know, we're having a conversation rather than you writing it in the book, but what would you say are the roots of disconnection? Like how did we end up like this and, and where did this come from? You know, is this, is this us? Mm. Well, I believe that human beings are always fundamentally connected. You know, interconnection is our basic nature. It's the nature of, of the universe. Everything in the universe is interconnected, interconnected. You know, there's a whole sort of philosophical background behind this, uh, which I mentioned later in the book. It's, yeah. it's, it's based on a philosophy which I call panspiritism, my kind of personal philosophy, which is that everything in the world, everything in the world consists of spirit. Everything stems from spirit. And our own inner being is an influx of of universal consciousness or universal spirit so yes. we so we're, we're always connected we can't be disconnected but you know at, at a fundamental at a fundamental level at our essential at the level of our essential deepest nature we can't be disconnected but at a mental level we can experience disconnection and a lot of human beings do like i mean as i said before most human beings are probably somewhere in the middle between you know psychopathy and enlightenment mm -hmm. um so I think there there is a certain level of disconnection which is natural to human beings as we as we have presently evolved. You know, it's natural for human beings to feel that we are somebody who lives in our personal space, you know, enclosed within our own mental worlds, mm -hmm. with the rest of the world out there on the other side of of our our brains or our schools. That's kind of a natural human experience. That's a kind of a moderate level of of disconnection or separation. But the kind of people we've just been talking about, the, the hyper-disconnected people, their, their level of disconnection is usually related to trauma. Um, most dis highly disconnected people have had traumatic childhood experiences, but they've suffered abuse, they've suffered a, a lack of maternal or pater of paternal attention or attachment mm -hmm. during early childhood. Um, so that, that's a common thread which lies, you know, you, you can identify that with every serial killer, with every psychopathic politician. They all, they, they, there's a very similar pattern of um, disturbed childhood experiences, as I say, dep deprivation, emotional deprivation, abuse, trauma. And, then, and there's, there's a whole sort of psychological process which takes place there where people protect themselves from trauma by closing themselves down to empathy into emotion is a kind of protective mechanism. They shut themselves down, and in doing so, they lose the capacity to to empathise with others. Obviously, that doesn't happen with everybody, but in some, you know, in, in certainly in in many cases, that's what occurs. Yeah, 
And then if they continue on that path, as you kind of explain in your book, like the callus above that just becomes harder and harder. And so it becomes harder to break away from that and to reconnect. And so they just, yeah, they just keep doubling down and, and getting more and more disconnected and, and seeing that that helps them to advance as well in their own goals and their own ambitions in, in chasing, yeah, that power, money, status, wealth and everything. Mm. Um, yeah. Do you think some hyper disconnected people that have like um, disorders of disconnection, as you put it, like psychopathy and, and narcissism and things like that, um, do you, are they are some people going to like forced to remain disconnected due to factors outside of their control, like mental illness? For some people, is it impossible for them to connect, do you think? And obviously, I'm talking probably about a very small minority right now. But is is there? Do you think there are people like that out there that, due to yeah, like I say, medical reasons or, or whatever, factors outside of their conscious control, they're stuck? Well, I mean, th there's always been a big debate in psychology about whether uh, psychopaths, for example, can be cured or whether narcissists can be cured. Mm -hmm. And the the consensus seems to be that they can't be cured because you know there are almost no cases of psychopaths, you know, sh showing signs of of responding to treatment mm. but part of the problem is that psychopaths and narcissists never believe that there's anything wrong with them they think that they are perfect people so they are never willing to to undergo treatment or therapy of some kind but um but but uh, in, in practice that may be the case but i think in theory at least everybody should be able to to become reconnected because as i've said before connection is our fundamental nature it's so fundamental to us that you know no matter how disconnected you are on a mental level, you are always connected at a deeper spiritual level. Yeah. So I think in theory, you should always be able to, to break through that shell of, of separation and reconnect somebody. You know, it, you know, I think, for example, I mean, there, are, there is one case, at least one case that I'm aware of, where a person who's highly disconnected to the point where he was, uh, you know, he's in, in prison for murder. And this is a guy in America um who'd been in prison for a number of years and he he began to spontaneously meditate he didn't know what meditation was but he just began to practice sort of closing his eyes and focusing on his breath just as a way of escaping from the the turmoil of the prison environment mm -hmm. he realized that the only way to escape it was to go inside himself yeah. so he began to focus on his breathing to close his eyes and enter his own mental space uh every day for a you know a few minutes several times a day and after a, after a few weeks, something shifted inside him as if a kind of wall broke down inside him and suddenly he became capable of empathy. He started to cry for the first time ever. He felt this sense of sadness, this sense of guilt. And, you know, he, he sort of felt sorry for his victims and for his family. And he was never the same person after that. He, he, he became an empathic person after that. So I think yeah. meditation, theory meditation would be a great way of, you know, of breaking down disconnection and enabling even people with psychopathic traits to to reconnect and i suppose they haven't necessarily tried that on mass like these people that say that or that you said the consensus is that you ne can't necessarily cure or, or help a, a psychopath to recover i suppose that's never been trialed on a mass scale like asking prisoners to meditate and enforcing that they do like making sure they do uh, yeah. on, on, on a kind of schedule or for a significant period of time or anything like that yeah it, it would be a great uh Thanks for the idea. It would be a great, great, uh, <laughs> great piece of research. Yeah, I mean, the yeah. problem, though, again, would be, you know, would psychopaths be willing to sit down and meditate? 
that's the question maybe if there was like some kind of trade-off like if you do this yeah, for the yeah, next yeah, five yeah. years of your sentence you're gonna get 10 percent taken off your sentence or yeah something i guess like so that. yeah yeah i mean i think it would work if if people were disciplined about it if they really did meditate mm. say for half an hour twice a day i think it would have a yeah you know, it could have a healing effect on them yeah yeah, it might even have a, quite a shocking effect. It could help in like areas that we, uh, you know, other areas, side areas and things like that, I suppose. Um, yeah, yeah. What external factors, what external factors would you say um, can affect where we are on the, the continuum of connection? Because I like the way you do that in the book. It's a continuum, obviously. It's not black and white. It's kind of a constantly, there's a scale and, and it's kind of constantly moving. Um, it's like a live so I'm thinking big things small things anything so if you could just mm, offer a few yeah. examples and like how that would affect yeah our level of connection I guess most of us we we, we kind of fluctuate from day to day maybe from year to year depending, mm -hmm. depending, depending on what's happening in our lives um I mean one factor seems to be gender I mean there's evidence there's a lot of research in yeah. psychology that suggests that women tend to be slightly more empathic uh, and more altruistic than men so in, in my terminology, they would be slightly further along the uh, the continuum of connection in general. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the, there may be social factors there, conditioning factors about, you know, men are kind of conditioned to be emotionless. And Do you think that's the main reason for it, the conditioning? Because it is strange I, 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 to think of the difference, because you'd think mm. at, the, at the ultimate level of the level of spirit or consciousness or whatever, we're the same i would expect mm. or i would at least think we we are essentially the same so yeah do you think it's mostly con the, the conditioning the gender I think difference? that's a factor but i think it, it probably there are probably other more fundamental factors Hormones. too well i mean this this sort of relates to a book i wrote called the fall um which was published about 18 years ago and i, I the fall is basically the fall into separation which is mm -hmm. similar to what i'm talking about in dis disconnection so my, my theory in that book was that women generally did not fall as severely into separation as men into ego separation mm -hmm. now when the fall is basically the fall into a state of extreme separateness or individuality and when the fall occurred men in particular began to experience a sense of duality to to nature towards their own bodies and that's an important factor because um you know, women are kind of more fundamentally, more powerfully connected to their biology. Female mm. biology is a lot more kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? A lot more active or, you know, or effervescent than male biology. And also maybe the fact that women in the most sort of patriarchal, the most aggressive societies, they still had a role, a, strong, a powerful role of nurturing children with a strong empathic connection to their children. Maybe that kind of made it, made it less likely that they would become separated to the same degree as men. So maybe yeah. maybe those those factors are you know are an influence too yeah but in, in terms of what you were saying you know things like you know mood is a, a big factor if, if you're tired mm -hmm. you tend to become a, a slightly more selfish if you're yeah. in a bad mood you become a bit more self-absorbed if you're if you're happy you generally people become more empathic and more altruistic when they're happy age is also a factor um there's research suggesting that as people grow older they tend to become more altruistic mm -hmm. um you know in, in some in some degrees aging seems to be a natural process of spiritual development at least for some people i think so the, some people go kind of go the other way towards greater disconnection get off but, my lawn yeah kind of young people <laughs> nowadays you know complaining about the world as it is now um but yeah 
and spiritual development you know, if, if you follow a spiritual practice that will increase your your degree of connection yeah it's amazing to think of some of the little things you know like um the the, the impact we can have on somebody else that we can alter that where they sit in that moment or on that day on the continuum of connection just based on you know maybe maybe we cut them up while we're driving or we beep at them yeah. un- unnecessarily and then on the on the flip side just a simple smile at somebody as you pass them in the street mm-hmm. might raise mm-hmm. raise where they sit at that moment it might cheer them up and then they pass that on to somebody else so kind of in a way it's almost as simple as that like we just need more yeah, smiling yeah. And, and, and less like uh, stress and, and it's going to kind of gradually have that domino effect of like, yeah. Oh, definitely. Person. Yeah. Yeah. At my university, I, I tell my students this story about the uh, the taxi passenger who made the whole town happy. Right. And it's the story of a, a guy arrives at a small town, uh, gets in a taxi at the station and starts chatting to the driver he's very friendly and says you know what do you what do you do in your free time tell me about your family blah 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 uh, and then at the end of the the journey he says wow i felt so safe that was a really you're a really great driver i felt really comfortable and safe with driving with you and the taxi driver's in a good mood so everybody gets into his taxi he's he's very friendly to them everybody all of them are in a good mood too it spreads to everybody they are in, co- in contact with. So it spreads like a kind of, you know, like a virus. It's, yeah. it, has, it has a contagious effect. So the whole, by the end of the day, the whole town is in a good mood just by this one, from this one taxi passenger. Yeah. Um, yeah and yeah, and, and you're right. Yeah, it's, cont- it's contagious. Just funny enough, I was just saying that to my son earlier that just, you know, we tend to remember acts of kindness, one simple act of kindness, which happened 25 years ago. Yeah. It stays with us. It, it, it stands out in our memory because it has such a powerful connective effect and and the same to the to i would say the negative things like a little negative comment that maybe is easy to to like throw off our tongue when we're in a bad mood can stick with somebody yeah for for a lifetime oh yeah it's so powerful i mean but the great thing about altruism is that it it is all about connection you know when when Mm. you when you perform an act of kindness towards somebody a stranger or a friend or a neighbor you you connect with them you know that there's this powerful empathic connection and when people witness it you know there could be a stranger who's walking down the street and witnesses you being kind to another person it spreads to them too you know that they feel part of that network of connection so you know it is it can be really powerful yeah absolutely do you think it's possible for hyper connected people to occasionally like on a one-off or, or occasionally display a trait or behavior that would be normally associated with a hyper disconnected person and the same in reverse to a degree yeah i mean you I mean human beings we are variable you know our behavior fluctuates a lot mm. i mean i mean gandhi's a good example i, I use the example of gandhi in yeah. the book I, I begin the book with the the, the interaction of gandhi and hitler gandhi famously wrote two letters to hitler at the beginning and just sorry before and just at the beginning of the second world war to try to you know persuade him to 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 halt his his aggression and stop the war but gandhi was obviously in many ways the perfect example of a an extremely connected person somebody who felt a strong spiritual connection to his fellow human beings who felt a mission to alleviate suffering and to stop conflict and Somebody who was willing to sacrifice his own well-being, even his, even his own life, yeah. for principles of morality and justice. So that's the very definition of, you know, an extremely connected person. But at the same time, you know, Gandhi was, um, you know, he was not a perfect person. He 
at the age of 37, he decided to become celibate, but didn't tell his wife, you know, didn't, you know, didn't consult his wife, which is extremely selfish. When he was a young man in South Africa, he made some sort of contentious statements about, you know, the indigenous population of South Africa. So he, he wasn't a perfect person. Yeah. But, you know, it's the overall pattern, the overall pattern of his behavior. Fundamentally, he was a, an extremely connected person. You could also take the example of Hitler. I mean, Hitler's servants and his domestic servants remarked that he was, you know, was a kind person. He'd buy them presents. He was polite. He was friendly. But it's it's you know it's it's the it's the overall general or fundamental pattern of behavior that we're talking about. Yeah, but it is, so I guess yeah, it is possible in in the sense that we're humans, like you said, and and little little things here and there can go against our general our general character. Um, mm-hmm. How can we know, like the you know normal people that are listening to this are wondering, ah, oh, where where do I sit on the this continuum of connection? How can people know where whereabouts they do fall on that, and and what can we do to develop our, our level of connection on an individual basis? And also, kind of part B to that question, how can we develop it on a on a global scale? Mm, good question. Well, I mean, one one trait which is strongly related to disconnection is the desire for for wealth power dominance mm-hmm. we, we talked about that already but the the basic reason why there is this uh, strong link is because when you live in a state of separation there's always a sense of lack there's something missing you feel incomplete so you feel impelled to accumulate things to compensate for your sense of lack so you feel impelled to accumulate power to accumulate wealth in order to to strengthen or reinforce yourself to kind of compensate for, for your sense of lack. So I guess that that is a measure of how disconnected or connected a person is, you know, mm-hmm. how materialistic are you? You know, do you feel that drive to accumulate possessions and money and power? Or do you, are you a person who likes to live simply? You know, do you prefer, is time more important than money for you? You know, are material, possess- are material possessions not important to you? That's that's one indication, and also um, you know we're not just talking about connections with human beings. We're talking about connections to nature. So you know if if you're the kind of person who feels a strong attraction to the natural world, that's because you you feel a sense of connection to nature. Mm-hmm. You know, you, I think a lot of people are drawn to the natural world because it enables them to transcend separateness. It enables them to reestablish a link to to the world outside and that 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 is also one way of cultivating connection spending time in nature is a way of cultivating connection yeah um as you know you know acts of service are also a way of cultivating connection those acts of service stem from an empathic connection a desire to alleviate a person's suffering or to help their development but also they they bring connection the more the more we serve others the more connected we become to others so that's another way of establishing, of moving towards connection. But probably the most effective way is some form of spiritual practice or some form of spiritual path. Spiritual paths are essentially paths of connection that take us beyond separation and that connect us more strongly and deeply to other beings and to the world in general. Yeah. And in terms of those spiritual paths, what do you think is like the most effective? Is it is it just simply meditation because it takes so many different forms or are there are there, are there other things that you would say oh this should be you know one of the main 
the best ways of doing it i'm rambling <laughs> <laughs> well uh i mean the, the spiritual paths they, they essentially head in the same direction but there's a mm -hmm. lot of variation in them you know and some spiritual paths are very detailed and very methodical so the so the buddhist spiritual path for example is a very you know the, the good thing about it it's very methodical it's very detailed it's well mapped out so you, you could just do, devote yourself to that particular path you know if it suits you then yeah. it would be it, it would certainly be an effective way of moving towards connection the same with the you know, the path of yoga you know that's also very detailed we're not just talking about the asanas of yoga we're talking about the whole sort of eightfold path of eight limbed path of yoga which focuses on different aspects of human behavior and human development and then there are, there are other paths like the, the path of sufism or the path of christian mysticism so they're, they're all you know anybody who devotes themselves to one particular path would certainly see you know um a movement towards connection yeah. but you know many people nowadays take a more eclectic approach you know they, they practice a bit of meditation bit of tai chi bit from here bit from there you know this they sometimes call it the spiritual supermarket but i i don't think there's necessarily you know people use that term use it usually use it in a just kind of disparaging way but i don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with it you, you're, you're picking practices which work for you which suit your personality but yeah. i think you know to go back to your question i think meditation is probably the you know the prerequisite the most essential spiritual yeah. practice because it's effective on so many different levels the kind of base level yeah you could do so much with it and and it yeah works in so many different areas yeah it connects you to your own deeper being you know through the quietness and stillness that you develop and it, it connects you to other people and, and to to the whole cosmos in addition yeah yeah um if we could convince a hyper disconnected person to read your book disconnected um let's give him a random name let's say boris or something like that do you think any of it would actually go in would they absorb any of the information would they would they read it like actually read it or would it just they glaze over it with their eyes and in in one ear and out of the other kind of thing um and they hmm. wouldn't associate hmm. themselves with any of it because you know because they can't look in the mirror and see what they are what is your take on that oh. yeah if we could actually because again i know he wouldn't you know they wouldn't read the book but it, but if they did if we could convince them to read it how would that go down <laughs> i don't th th they wouldn't recognize themselves because because no. one trait of these people is that they, they, they believe that they are perfect they, they believe mm -hmm. that they are infallible completely lacking any flaws so they, they might think oh yes i've, I've met a few hyper disconnected <laughs> people uh, but you know, they, it would never occur to them that they are one of them. Yeah. They, they say, "Of course, I feel a sense of empathy. Of yeah. course, I am a selfless person. Everything I do is uh, selfless and for others." You know, yeah. the, the, one thing about them—they live in a state of self-delusion too. So, you know, their self-delusion helps to convince them that they have no flaws and that they, they don't need to to change. Yeah. It's pretty wild <laughs> to think of it like that. It's uh, it's kind of yeah, scary. It's scary. The lack of awareness um how can we help people like that that are disconnected how can we help like people with varying degrees of disconnection how can we help them to to become more connected um well you know we've, we've mentioned um acts of kindness and altruism i think what one people one thing that disconnected people need is connection from others like it's sort of um they, one thing they don't need is confrontation challenge or aggression that just makes them more disconnected. It makes them more armored. They, they don't need a taste of their own medicine, basically. They no, need, no. Know. So I, I, I try to practice that in my, in my own life. It's not easy. 
I don't always succeed, but if a person is kind of nasty to me or aggressive, I try not to respond with aggression. I try to respond with sympathy, kindness, understanding. And mm. sometimes it, you know, it has the effect of breaking down their, their aggression, you know, breaking down their, their disconnection. Yeah. So, the, so we're talking again about, about the power of kindness. And the power of kindness works especially well against unkind people. Yeah. And it, may, it, may, it may take some time. You may have to, you know, slowly work away over many weeks, but eventually you may be able to break down their, their disconnection. Yeah. And th therapy, you know, I think if you can encourage them to, to engage in some form of therapy, some, something that allows them to, to exchange, to communicate, to connect, you know, because often, often disconnected people work at, they, they are very, they live at the level of the mind. And they're very, you know, they're, they're, they're very successful and very confident and competent at that, at that level. Mm -hmm. and, the, and often they're not willing to go beyond the mind, to go down to the level of uh, emotions or heart or compassion, because, uh, you know, they, they operate really well at that level. That's where they live. That's where they feel comfortable. So mm -hmm. if you can allow them or persuade them to come down from the level of the mind towards the heart or towards emotions, and to engage at that level, at an, an emotional, empathic level, then that can be very healing for them. It's just, you know, persuading them to to operate at that level. Mm, yeah. Yeah, it's a challenge, isn't it? Because again, I, I, I guess a lot of very disconnected people, a la Boris, you know, we used his name. If somebody was really kind to him and helped him out, part of me thinks, probably the majority of me thinks, that he'd go home that night and be like, ah, oh, what a mug. Did you see Ben helping me like that? Like, uh, what a fool, what a weak, uh, you know, he's never going to get anywhere in life like that. Mm -hmm. um, and, but I guess, like you said, if consistency over a period of time, maybe the kindness will, will break them down. Um, yeah. And, and I mean, somebody like him, you know, I guess we are talking about Boris Johnson, the ex prime minister. He, he did have a quite traumatic childhood. So mm. if you could somehow persuade him to, to have therapy to deal with his childhood trauma, then or, or meditation as we said earlier if you could somehow persuade him to sit down and meditate twice a day mm. you know, that, that that could you know even for somebody like him there could be a process of reconnection yeah yeah still i don't still think anybody hope. is i don't think anybody is completely lost even serial killers and psychopaths you know like i said before connection is so fundamental that you should always be able to reconnect somebody to their essential nature yeah do you think it's possible for, again, hypothetical situation here, do you think it's possible for a billionaire to be hyper-connected? Um, now, I say mm. that because like, I feel like it's almost an oxymoron because I feel like before you reach a billion pounds, dollars, whatever, if you're that connected, you're going to have given away large sums and, and swathes of your money to people less fortunate or to good causes. So do you think it's possible yeah, to, to be hyper connected or at least very connected and and become a billionaire or is it like i said is it just conflicting ideas there it's kind of um yeah it, it is conflicting to a large degree i think it could happen accidentally if somebody just invented some kind of technology which happened to mm -hmm. become really popular and which was sold for millions of pounds or billions of pounds but no i think somebody who made a concerted conscious effort to become wealthy they that could never stem from from connection yeah. Yeah. Because, as we said before, the desire for wealth is always a product of disconnection. 
And I suppose in your accidental example, they would probably be a billionaire for a very short period of time because then they'd start doing stuff with the money. Yeah, um, that's right. And yeah. I, mean, I mean, another factor is that power and wealth do corrupt. So it's possible that a person mm. could become accidentally wealthy and then become corrupted or disconnected. Yeah. You know, the, the, it's it's true that power corrupts. It's also true that corrupt, uh, corrupt people are attracted to power. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. So why is politics so attractive to to people that are, are disconnected um, or corrupt or however we want to call it? And I guess to add on to that as like a part B, what, what is a pathocracy? Well, politics is particularly, I mean, it depends on the kind of society you live in. But if you live in a hierarchical society, like mm -hmm. individualistic society like the UK or the US, yeah. then power is conferred, power is concentrated in certain positions. And particularly in politics, power is highly concentrated in politics, and particularly at the higher echelons of, of the political hierarchy. Yeah. So, you know, as disconnect, as hyper-disconnected people feel this overpowering attraction towards positions of power, they gravitate towards politics. It may depend on their kind of personality. You know, I think particularly nowadays, people with largely narcissistic traits are particularly attracted to politics whereas people with psychopathic traits maybe they're not so attracted to the the attention that yeah. politics brings maybe those people... celebrities these days right yeah so. yeah so you gotta you gotta have that instinct to that kind of celeb desire for celebrity i think people with more more prevalent psychopathic traits are more likely to operate in a in a kind of more secretive way maybe they're more likely to be heos or to be hardcore criminals and so forth so yeah i think people with kind of dominant narcissistic traits are especially attracted to the power and celebrity of politics and also because it gives them the opportunity to, to, to gain wealth as well um so it's, it's it's the ideal place for politics politicians sorry for hyper disconnected people to to gravitate to obviously not the only place but one of the places yeah and a pathocracy um that's the the term for a government which consists largely or or entirely of hyper disconnected or or disordered people so a pathocracy was probably the most common form of government in the 20th century. If you think about all of the, the large countries in the world which were governed by hyper-disconnected people like Russia, uh, the Nazis in Germany, Spain under Franco, Mussolini, Italy, also Chairman Mao, and many yeah. of the countries, South America, most, most of South America, certainly in the second half of the 20th century was ruled by you know, dictators, military dictatorships, communist countries, which were essentially patho pathocracies, and then many African countries, many Middle Eastern countries in the kind of post-colonial era, which effectively became pathocracies led by sadistic, violent, you know, incredibly brutal people like Saddam Hussein or Colonel Gaddafi, I guess are the most prominent examples. So yeah, pathocracy, that, I mean, all, and all of this comes from this incredible lust which disconnected people have for power particularly in societies like, like say, the Middle East that we just mentioned, or Africa, societies where there aren't strong democratic systems, particularly in those societies, there's much more likelihood of the most ruthless, the most violent people attaining the highest positions of power, becoming presidents uh, or prime ministers. In, in more democratic countries, you know, there, there are more regulations to limit the behavior of these people. But they don't actually stop them getting into power in the, in the first place. I mean, none of this stopped Boris Johnson becoming prime minister, but it did regulate his behavior. And he eventually kind of, you know, 
led to him leaving his position. So democracy, democracy works to a degree once these people are in power, but it doesn't stop them gaining power in the first place. And another thing that once one essential aspect of plutocracy is that once a disconnected or disordered leader is in place, he tends to attract other people of the same ilk with similar traits. Whereas responsible moral people gradually leave the government, so they're either either resigned or, uh, or they kind of leave voluntarily, or maybe even killed in some cases. So yeah. eventually, after, not well after a short space of time, the whole government consists of these types these types of people. And then I guess in turn that, or not, I guess I learned this from your book. In turn, that then kind of has its impact on the population, and and people then the more susceptible to influence like that i suppose maybe not everybody but people then generally start to to become more disconnected themselves because they have that kind of messaging coming through the media through the yeah. government everything like that and so it just kind of it's like a, a really vicious circle isn't it where it, oh yeah yeah and i guess that's basically what's gone wrong with humanity since because you, you you made a great case in your book that for 95 percent of our time here we've been connected we've been living in you know egalitarian altruistic societies it's only since we started to settle and our and our settlements became competitive and everything like that mm -hmm. and uh, and there we are that's the kind of same vicious circle uh, as to why we're here i suppose that's yeah. right yeah I mean, yeah that's one of the essential problems with pathocracies that you know once a, a pathocratic government is in place it spreads its pathologies or tries to at least to the whole population you know mm. through propaganda through through influence but also you know the pathocrats you know they're, they're often very intelligent people very cunning very yeah. manip manipulative so they know how to create a sort of sense of unity in the population they they talk about a, a great future often rekindling a great past and they talk about enemies to create a sense of unity you know that protect ourselves from these enemies you know the dangers and so forth so they're they're very adept at creating a sense of you know you know well they're, they're very adept at spreading their pathology towards the general population yeah i guess a perfect example of that is like the the way the messaging from the government in the uk and the media on like the small boats on people kind of you know refugees and and people that need help coming yeah. out of the channel out of, out of pure desperation seeking some yeah, help and some aid yeah. and the, yeah. the messaging has been on like invasion and things like that and it's, yeah. it's wild it's, it's terrible it's it's really really awful they're, i don't think they do it consciously because they, they are hyper disconnected people mm. you know they, they 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 themselves you know perceive these people as enemies they perceive the migrants as as, as threats to them but maybe yeah. i think maybe subconsciously they're aware that you know, we need to, they need to create enemies in order to entrench their power to become more popular. You know, there's a kind of very basic psychology there that, you know, they need, they know that to create otherness creates a sense of unity in a population, you know, and, you know, it's, it's a real shame. But I mean, I, I do think that the good thing is that most people are generally moral and empathic. You know, there's there's quite often a big disjunct between a pathocratic government and the population. E even if they try to spread their propaganda and their pathology to the to the general population, the majority of ordinary people are quite moral, responsible, and empathic. So sooner or later, you know, once a government becomes especially corrupt and, or malevolent, the general population becomes fed up with them and eventually, you know, moves to eject them from power in a democracy anyway. And you know, yeah. if you live in Russia, or if you live in the middle east or africa that may not be as easy yeah 
And I guess that's kind of what's happening in the UK at the moment, right? I, I suppose that is starting to happen. Like people that have probably been Tory voters for a long time are totally disillusioned. And I think that it's going to be a change. Obviously, we could easily go from disconnected government to disconnected government. Um, it's not hard to imagine that happening at all. Mm. Um, but we'll but we'll see i guess boris i tell you what with boris it did when i was reading your book it really did feel like for a while like it was written for him you know about him like he fits <laughs> it to a t like he might be the i don't want to say the greatest ever because because <laughs> it's clearly not a good thing to be to be great at but like the greatest ever narcissistic pathocrat or like you know disconnected leader he's obviously not in the in the level of hitler or stalin like a psychopath in that sense although i'm sure no. he has some psychopathic traits but one of the most elite narcissist leaders ever uh, yeah. along with i guess trump in in that sense yeah yeah i mean they're good examples of uh, of narcissists you know the only mitigating factor about narcissists is that they have a need to be liked I mean, yeah psychopaths just don't care they, they'll kill other people they'll manipulate they'll you know persecute other people without any mitigation but but you know the only mitigating factor is psychopaths they want other people to admire them to like them so it's slightly mitigates their behavior but yeah regulates yeah. them a little bit yeah. a little bit yeah um but again they've it, boris showed us like the how he kind of kind of grow his following and like he has that kind of cult-like following again it's kind of waning now but yeah for, a, yeah for a while there that it was insane to to see people totally blind to things he would do and how he would act and things he would say uh, and people would make any excuse it would be the same as how boris would react i suppose if we'd asked him like why did you do that and he's like what i didn't do anything wrong you know, mm -hmm. i didn't didn't even do that it, yeah i guess it like you say people kind of becoming influenced by it how widespread is pathocracy now i know you said last century was it was awful for it probably the i think the most murderous or bloodiest century in in our history mm. but how how widespread is it now again i think from your book i, I think it's still maybe a majority of countries have like a dictator and, mm. and i know and i know that in democracies like we look at the uk and the us as like leading light democracies in some sense or in some areas we we think of them like that but as far as i'm concerned it's broken democracy it doesn't really work um, it doesn't work no you're you're right I mean, I think there are, there are some promising signs um, in Africa, for example, you know, over the past two, three decades, there's definitely been a movement towards democracy and egalitarianism in Africa. Mm. Uh, you know, um, I think the, the governments are, are less oppressive and, and less pathocratic in many countries. And also in South America, you know, so definitely, there's definitely been a, a movement away from those military dictatorships towards more democratic governments in, in South America. Yeah. Uh, but but yeah, there are there are some you know very worrying signs too in Russia. Donald, uh, sorry, President Putin is he's definitely uh, you know has psychopathic traits. Um, yeah. You know the, the Chinese government seems to be becoming seems to be becoming more pathocratic. Mm. Um, so it's a, it's a mixed picture, really. I mean, I think we live in a time of of extremes. We live in a time of kind of increasing connection, increasing empathy and compassion increasing spirituality but we also live in a time of increasing you know patriarchy increasing corruption increasing conflict so i think we're you know we're, we're living in interesting interesting times i mean the way i would describe it is that we live in a time where you know the old disconnective traits of patriarchy aggression nationalism warfare and so forth um, they are kind of trying to defend themselves against this rising tide of connective traits. Yeah. You know, so there's this kind of conflict 
happening between the the old disconnective and the new rising connective traits. Do you still think it's a majority at the moment of like world leaders that are disconnected and and countries that have a pathocracy? Again, we don't for the purposes of this. I mean, we can kind of throw mm, democracies yeah. like the UK in in the same bag with with a, a very disconnected um, dictatorship. Just for the purposes of like the UK as a political system right now is mm. not like a connected one. It's not an altruistic one. No. So so is mm. it a majority of the world? That, I think that, so. I think it's still a majority of the world. I mean, obviously there are different levels of disconnection. Yeah. You know, there are, there are a lot of malevolent, malevolent leaders who are not, you know, you wouldn't say they're psychopathic, but they're still disconnected to some degree. You know, they're not Hitler or Stalin, but they're still malevolent to some degree. They still have no sense of responsibility or morality. You know, their main goal is to maintain their own power rather than to serve their own people. That's that's common around the world. So it, it is a, yeah, I think largely pathocracy is still the most common form of government in the world. Yeah. Do you think there are any hyper-connected leaders, in, like world leaders? Oh, I don't think so. <laughs> um, I think there are some some leaders who are connected to a degree. Yeah. Uh, often, often we were talking earlier about gender. And I think often it tends to be the the female leaders. Yeah. Uh, tend to be more connected, but there are very few female female leaders around the world. I think you know recently there were only fifteen out of one hundred and seventy. Yeah, it's crazy. Fifteen out of one hundred and ninety, something like that. Yeah. Um, but I mean, there was some sort of, uh, I, I thought Angela Merkel was, a, she was a responsible moral person who was trying to serve a population. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think there are any, I don't think there are any hyper-connected leaders, but there are some leaders no. who are, who are more connected than others. Yeah. That way. Yeah, this is probably a fair way to put it. Um, and what, what do you think we can do to avoid or let's say minimize pathocracy going forward? There are a number of things, some of which are less realistic than others. I think it would be, it would be very effective to have some, to have much more regulation about who becomes a polit- political leader. Yeah. Um, one very simple idea would be to have assessments, psychological assessments at every political leader. Yeah. And I'm not talking about filling in a checklist. I'm talking about very thorough psychological assessments, including, you know, meeting acquaint- previous acquaintances, previous employees or colleagues of the person, tutors. Yeah university so you get a very thorough personality profile of the person that would even just there even if you didn't have anything else to say that would change the game entirely like on a on a massive scale um, yeah. as long as we could guarantee that they were actually independent professionals doing those assessments and yeah they i mean obviously psychology <laughs> psycho the psychology profession is not completely free of this yeah. phenomenon either you know we had a whole series of issues recently in the British Psychological Society about the, I won't go into it, but the kind of president of right. the British Psychological Society behaved in, in a very unbe- in an unbecoming way and had yeah. to be ejected from, from the position. But anyway, that, that's one thing that, that could have a big impact. Um, I mean, and, it, and it's crazy when you think about it. May, many professions have some form of assessment, you know, before you're, before you're accepted. Mm. Um, but, you, but we don't do it in politics. Anybody is free to put themselves forward as a, a political leader. Anybody yeah. is free to join their local political party uh, or association, become a councillor or become a member of parliament. Once they become a member of parliament, they're free to rise through the ranks to become prime minister. So there's no regulation at all. It's completely crazy. And that's why yes. we end up with a situation where the British government is effectively a pathocracy. Yeah. Uh, or same in the United States. The United States government, certainly under President Trump, was effectively a pathocracy because there's not enough regulation or assessment. 
Well, I think there are, there are more kind of s- systemic things that we can do as well. We, we can change the nature of democracy. I think the kind of de- democracy we have, it doesn't work because it's a representative democracy or an elective democracy, which means we elect people to represent us, uh, yeah. whether they're members of parliament or congressmen or senators. Well, anybody who's free to put themselves forward as a member of parliament or senator, and often, or in many cases, it's malevolent people, disconnected people who put themselves forward. We don't have much choice, you know. Do we elect this disconnected person or this disconnected person? You know, yeah. it doesn't really matter. <laughs> um, so, but I think we need a, a much more participatory democracy, a much more direct form of democracy, such yeah. as you know the, the original form of democracy in ancient Athens was very participatory. Major decisions were taken by the general population. And also in ancient Athens, there were many there were many kind of processes which regulated power, which which ensured that disreputable people did not gain positions of power. You know, leaders were elected by sortition, by random. Mm-hmm. Decisions were made by boards, representative citizens' assemblies, representing the population. So uh, you know, the good thing about this kind of system is that it would be less attractive to disconnected people when power is more egalitarian when it's shared. Or distributed, then it's no it's no longer as attractive to disconnected people because they don't have the same opportunity to to gain dominance and, and wealth or to, to manipulate other people. So there, there's some sort of practical things we can do. I think in a more general level and a more fundamental level, you know, it is about personal spiritual development. You know, the more we the more connected we become as individuals, the more connected our societies will become and the more connected the whole world will become yeah yeah i mean any of those would be a, a very welcome improvement on what we have right now um and in your book i think another one was lotocracy um where like people would randomly be it's like kind of like jury duty i guess where yeah where people are yeah. assigned to work on a specific uh yeah decision or, or project um yeah and and they'll know it's a set period of time and they won't go back and, and do something again for, again, a certain period of time. Might not be the perfect solution, but it would be all of these things would be so far superior to, to the current system. Yeah, we, we have a lot to learn from um, from the earliest human societies. And you mentioned earlier that, you know, that for 95 percent of the time we've lived on this planet, we lived in egalitarian societies or connected societies. Yeah. Um, and that only, that only really began to change once we started farming. Uh, which began about 10,000 years ago and slowly spread very, very slowly. Um, But until then, people lived in very simple, small hunter-gatherer groups. And there are still some remaining hunter-gatherer groups who live in the same way that we did many centuries ago, many thousands of years ago. And those simple societies are very, very sophisticated mechanisms of preserving egalitarianism and harmony. Mm -hmm. And so they, they don't have a, a a single leader who makes decisions on the behalf of, behalf of the group all the time. Leadership rotates according to situations. Yeah. Um, and also people don't put themselves forward as leaders. Leaders are chosen by the whole group, uh, sometimes at random, but usually it's the most experienced, most wise person who is chosen by the rest of the group to represent them for, you know, in a certain situation for a certain amount of time. And those societies also have, they have methods of preserving the harmony of the group by limiting the influence of dominant individuals. If somebody shows a desire for dominance, they are often ostracized by the community. The whole community gangs up against them to stop them taking power. Yeah. So, you know, we, we can we can learn a lot from those societies. 
Absolutely. A lot, a lot indeed. And I, and again, I guess the whole thing is about limiting the how much power the leaders actually have and, and how much possibility they have to accumulate and to to dictate and to control things. It's about limiting that and about making it so it's, yeah, it's a, it's a decision made by multiple people. Yeah, yeah. It also makes, uh, you know, there's, there's a strong, I mean, one of the problems in our society is, is that moral, responsible people are often not particularly interested in power. Yeah. You know, they, they often don't, don't feel comfortable with power because power disconnects them from others. It kind of puts them on a pedestal away from, they, they like to be on the ground, kind of interacting and communicating. So, you know, if we could have some processes which, which ensure that the most moral, the wisest, the most, most empathic people take responsibility for the, for the whole group, you know, in a, a leadership position, then that would obviously improve the situation. I mean, at the moment, at the moment, you know, since moral, responsible people are not attracted to power, it leaves the positions free for immoral and irresponsible people. Yeah. So you've come up with these, or not you personally necessarily, but you've compiled these alternatives, these potential alternatives in your book, and we've just discussed some of them now, right? There's obviously way, if, if we sat down for hours, days, weeks, months, and you know thought about it in detail there'd be lots of other ways i'm sure lots of potential alternatives we could come up with that would be an improvement on what we've got now the really frustrating thing for me is and, and the big question is why not why are we not swap like switching right now because obviously there's reasons for that there's the people in power and things don't want it the, the question is why do, is there almost no sections of mainstream media that even faintly discuss like mm. an alternative system why do why is that never happening like and tonight on bbc panorama we talk mm. about potential alternatives to the current political system you know why is that such a taboo almost why mm. I, I cannot it's, it's like every news reporter and every journalist that's involved with these things just think oh well that's what we got and that's what it'll be forever and there's no point even mentioning doing something else because well boris will you know do something to us or i don't know I, I i don't know exactly why it is other than to think potentially that yeah they're all kind of interlinked and and there's money exchanged and yeah. it's kind of don't upset the apple cart but what's what's your take on that yeah i think there are, there are definitely vested vested interests as you say but also as you inferred people you know they they take the they take the present situation for granted they're not aware that it can be different. You know, they're not aware of different forms of democracy. And what, what frustrates me most is that nobody is aware of this connection between psychological disorders or between psychological disconnection and power. Nobody is aware yeah. that, you know, that the people in the highest positions of power in this country or in other countries, that they are psychologically disordered. You know, people just yeah. say, oh, the ruthless. The symptoms, they sometimes use adjectives to describe them. But nobody is aware of this, you know, the psychology behind it. Maybe it's changing slightly. I mean, I, I've had some success in getting articles placed in the popular media. Um, the most amazing was the Daily Telegraph contact, contacted me and said, could you, could you write an article about Boris Johnson and, and his pathological traits? So that, that was kind of interesting that they were happy to publish it. Yeah, definitely. But no, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's frustrating. It's, it's wild, but hopefully that's going to change. Um, Hopefully you're going to get more opportunities to go and, and share all of this with people and to, to educate people in terms of that. But I suppose an element of it maybe is that people at home think, 
Oh, no. I mean, Boris can't actually have this kind of personality disorder because surely he wouldn't have got into the position he's in if he did, right? Somebody would have stopped mm. him. Somebody would have, somebody, you know, it wouldn't have happened. It can't happen. But that's yeah. maybe, again, people don't sit, like, take a moment to actually realize there are no checks and balances in place necessarily to no, stop exactly. hyper disconnected people with, with disorders getting into these positions. God, yeah. Yeah scary scary times um yeah. is there anything else you want to talk about in terms of your book before i move on and ask you some more general questions um maybe only that you know that there is um you know i am quite optimistic um despite all of the difficulties we've talked about despite all the the trouble and suffering yeah. that fills the world I, I do think we are slowly moving along the continuum of connection i think we are the world is becoming slowly more empathic i think it has been becoming more empathic for the last 200 or 300 years slowly so i am optimistic i think i think you know if we can survive as a species i think we have a a bright future but the problem is that the kind of the disconnective traits are moving us towards yeah. crisis and even catastrophe yeah you know i think the climate emergency is rooted in disconnection to nature yeah, so we need to we need to move towards connection in, in order to ensure our survival as a species but if we can survive as i say i think we do of a bright future i think the the, the the trajectory of history moves towards connection yeah it's just it's that big if right now isn't it like yeah do you, so we're kind of in a race uh, like yeah the 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 continuum of connection kind of increasing versus our own destruction our own demise in terms of as you mm. say environment obviously we know and feel that we're on the edge of nuclear destruction at any moment it could be could be today could be in 20 years could be in 100 years but it feels like it's right there um and there's you know other things too potentially going on that could cause us problems but even if it's just nuclear versus an environment versus us getting connected do you do you think like how confident are you how optimistic are you that we're going to win that that battle that we're going to make it there and be able to fix our problems and fix our environment and everything like that mm. uh, i'm not, i'm not completely confident i guess it depends <laughs> hopefully <laughs> I, I become sometimes i'm more pessimistic or optimistic I think yeah. I think the the climate emergency is possibly even worse than we think. So in that sense, I'm not yeah. particularly optimistic. Yeah. But I, I mean, you know, maybe there will be time for us to recover. I think, in a way, the climate emergency itself can be a spur towards awakening or increasing mm. connection. Yeah. So we'll have to see. I, I, you know, at the moment, I feel slightly more pessimistic than optimistic. But you know, hopefully, I'll be proved wrong. Yeah, at least you're still hopeful. At least you've still got that. Yeah, I, I don't think it's a done deal. I think, you know, there are grounds for optimism, certainly. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's good. Um, so, yeah, to move on then and, and talk about some some other things. Um, can you kind of give me your definition of a spiritual awakening? Um, and assuming you have had a spiritual awakening or have been through a spiritual awakening yourself, could you kind of share a little bit about that? Spiritual awakening is... Um... An expansion of awareness. Normal human awareness, human awareness is quite limited, but in spiritual awakening, we suddenly experience this expansion of awareness. We become aware of more reality, both within ourselves and within the world out there. We we become increasingly connected to other people. We sense other people's beings through empathy and compassion. We sense the being of the whole world of nature, of other living beings. So there's a, this tremendous opening and expansion of awareness. Both, you know, including within ourselves, we we become aware of this amazing, rich being within our within our own consciousness. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think 
as we said earlier on, I, I, I had some spiritual experiences when I was quite young, when I was a teenager, probably 16 yeah. to 17 years old. So for me, it's my, my process of spiritual development has really been about kind of establishing spiritual, establishing wakefulness as a kind of ongoing trait, which I've tried to uh, stabilize. In, in the beginning, it was a process of acceptance and understanding. And then a process of integration, trying to integrate that into my daily life so that experiences became something more stable and something more ongoing. Yeah. Um, now, and, and obviously, you know, it varies from day to day. But I think there is this kind of undercurrent of wakefulness, which is in me all the time, which sometimes I, I may, you know, become detached from. But it's always fundamentally there. Yeah. And and your spiritual experiences that you had when you were younger were they like w what were they like was it just a feeling was it you, something visual was was there more to it they they were experiences of connection with nature which I still get now you know I get them a lot when I go into natural surroundings but it, it to to give you one basic example I remember when I was sixteen seventeen years old walking through I used to occasionally go back to my school at night probably the only person who used to go back to school at night. <laughs> Just to wander around the fields because I lived in a city. There weren't many natural spaces. So I just like to go to the back to the fields and wander around on my own because I knew I, I, would be, I would be undisturbed and I like to enjoy the stillness and solitude. So I remember walking through my school fields at night in the darkness and just being aware that the trees were sentient beings. They, they were living beings with their own kind of consciousness. Then I looked at the sky. The sky seemed to, seemed to be alive with its own kind of consciousness. Everything around me was alive. The, the moon, the clouds, everything seemed to have its own kind of sentience or, or being. And I felt that everything was interconnected. You know, everything was kind of like the manifestation of something more fundamental, as if all of these different phenomena were expressions, like waves of the, of the same ocean. Yeah. And I felt that I was part of it too. You know, there was no sense of separation. I was part of this powerful network of being. And there was obviously there was a feeling of kind of elation, a feeling of harmony and meaning yeah wow that must have uh, yeah, been amazing and, and i guess like you said at the time you didn't really realize what was happening you didn't really know it was a spiritual experience you didn't know those words to put on it it was just uh an experience i guess for you just something that you felt yeah i mean i i, I couldn't i couldn't tell other people about it. i didn't try to describe it to other people because i sensed that they would think i was a bit crazy so yeah I just yeah. kept it to myself. I, I mean, I thought there was probably something slightly wrong with me, like I said earlier, that I was slightly crazy, like a, a cra I, I thought it was like a bit like a kind of crazy romantic poet, uh, that kind of image about myself. <laughs> yeah. Um, how and why does trauma open people up to, to these kind of experiences and to, to spiritual awakening? That's a good question. Trauma is, um, you know, it's, it's one way in which the ego can become deconstructed. Mm -hmm. When people go through intensely traumatic experiences in some cases probably you know in a small number of cases overall um the ego breaks down you know it, it can't stand the pressure of the situation or slowly it's dismantled over a long period as a person's psychological attachments are taken away and eventually they reach a point where the ego just dissolves or collapses like a like a like a house that collapses in an earthquake or a house that collapses when you take all of the bricks away. Yeah. And, and often that's just equivalent to a breakdown, even psychosis. But in, in some people, it may also be equivalent or it may, it may also enable a transformation to take place. 
it may enable a new cell to be born inside them. So some people, it's almost as if they have a, a dormant or latent spiritually awakened self, which is just kind of waiting for the opportunity to arise, like a, like a phoenix that yeah. rises from the ashes. So when the ego breaks down, that's when the, the new spiritually awakened self arises. Or the so, old spiritually awakened self, the innate, the innate spiritually awakened self. Yeah, that's right. It was always there. You know, it was all, already sort of established as a structure, but it didn't have the opportunity to manifest itself until the ego, until the normal ego died away. Yeah. And that can happen regardless of whether it's like a, a sudden trauma that doesn't like, like like a bereavement or something or like a period of, of depression or what, what have you. These, it can, yeah, it can, it can happen in a kind of a variety of different scenarios. I mean, it, bereavement is a good example because it does ha often happen following a bereavement. I mean, bereavement breaks everything down. You know, the, the normal world is turned upside down. Uh, yeah, everything that we depended on for, for our security and well-being is stripped away. Yeah. Um, it can also happen through addiction. I mean, the addiction is kind of a classic case, really, because slowly over the course of an addiction, everything is taken away. You know, a person loses their friends, their, their career, their self-respect. You know, even they may even come close to losing their life. And eventually, when they've lost everything, that's when this transformation can occur. So yeah. There are many strange cases of, uh, which I talk about in my, my book, Extraordinary Awakenings, many strange cases of people who, you know, they've been really severe addicts for a long period of time. And they reach the point of desolation. Sometimes they reach the point of attempting suicide. And then they undergo this seemingly miraculous transformation where, where their addiction fades away, just falls away. Yeah. And they become free of, of addiction in a, an almost miraculous way. It's kind of beautiful like, like the trauma and these difficult experiences can can act as a catalyst for the exact you know thing that that we require at that moment to to, to have the life altered yeah, um, it, it, yeah it often happens with a, an encounter with death you know when a person is diagnosed with cancer or they recover from a, a life-threatening emergency mm. you know they become literally different people yeah. in the aftermath yeah, I always remember when I was a kid, I think one of the teachers at my school, uh, he was like, you know, he had a reputation for just being horrible, just not not being a nice guy at all. Although he did, you know, he had a little side to him, maybe like a diamond has many sides. One of his sides was okay, but generally rough and, and not very nice. Anyway, he, he was diagnosed with, I don't know what form of cancer, but some type of cancer. And I think he... And he didn't die from that, I don't think, or at least not in a period of a few years from that point. But next time kind of I interacted with him he was totally different person like came across really like interested in me and was you know like a nice guy and people were saying like oh have you seen Mr you know whatever and and like mm -hmm. yeah wow he's he's changed he's a really nice guy and all this kind of thing um and so it's it's cool to see it on an individual basis yeah I often think that every human being should have an encounter with death just mm. to to wake them up and you know shift yeah. them into a, a more connected state yeah yeah you t you recently sat down with uh, with Zach Khan. Um, oh yeah, yeah. And it, so at, when you sat down with him, I think what like two months ago now, maybe two or three months ago, mm -hmm. he only he only had a few weeks to live. Um, you recorded that conversation at his request, and and I think you you described the conversation as maybe the most profound conversation you've ever had. Mm. Um, you've published them on your podcast, which I've listened to the first two parts of them, and and I recommend anybody that's interested to go and and listen to that. Um, but I just wondered, yeah, if you could kind of talk a little bit about Zach and, and, um, I mean, first of all, can you yeah, just introduce Zach before I kind of ask my first question, mm. I guess, like, uh, who was he? 
Uh, a friend of mine put me in contact with Zach when I was writing my book, Extraordinary, Awake, Extraordinary Awakenings, because um, she knew that he had had a, a major transformation as a result of being ill with cancer. Mm -hmm. So he, he had a, a powerful near-death experience. And it, it was the type of near-death experience where he left his body and he traveled through space and he felt this kind of incandescent light around him. Mm. He met beings who sort of shared their wisdom with him. Um, you know, it was this amazing transformational journey, which which probably only lasted a few seconds in real time, but for him it last, seemed to last for hours. Yeah, and um, that was when he almost died as compli um, due to complications from his cancer treatment when he was in hospital. And I think that was in that was in two thousand nine. So, so after that experience, he he was a, a changed person. He for one thing, he, he he knew that there was some form of life after death. You know, he knew that his consciousness would continue yeah. uh, once his body. Uh, dissolved away and he had this sense that you know the fundamental reality of the universe was was bliss or love you know in, in his near-death experience he just sensed this pure love and, and light he sensed this light that he felt was the source of the universe which many many people do in near-death experiences so he was a different person so um i interviewed him about that experience and how it how it had transformed his life and then I became quite friendly with him. He started to do a PhD with me at my university. Okay, yeah. Uh, he was interested in, he, was, he had a background in psychology and wanted to do a PhD on the kind of on spiritual psychology. But soon soon afterwards, or a few months afterwards, he his cancer returned. And he was told that he, you know, he, he, could, have, he could have treatment. And if he didn't have treatment, he probably just had a, maybe three months left to live. But the treatment was only, I think he said it was, it had a 20 to 50% chance of success, which is, you know, a fairly, I guess it's a fairly decent chance of success. But he decided not to have the treatment. He decided that he wasn't going to put himself through it. He decided that he was going to accept the fact that he was going to die and, and just, you know, savor his last few weeks of life on this planet. And yeah, we, we got together. And I interviewed him about how he was feeling and why he, de why he decided to to face death rather than have treatment. Yeah. And yeah, he died just, just about two weeks after the interview. So it, it was a very profound experience to sit with somebody who had chosen to embrace his own Absolutely. demise. I mean, yeah. I think part, 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 of the, part of the reason why he was willing to do that was because he sensed, he knew from his previous experience, he was convinced that there was some form of continuation. Yeah. Yeah, he had no fear. Yeah, um, no fear. What would you? What was his approach and his attitude towards? Yeah, the impending death of his body. Like, how was he? How was he dealing with that? How was he processing it? He he was in a state of surrender. He was in a state of bliss. It was really fantastic to to spend time with. I could feel radiance around him. He was in a complete state of serenity. You know, which may seem paradoxical to to people who who naturally you know, fear death or, or want to postpone death for as long as possible. That's, that's completely normal yeah. and natural. But yeah, it was, it was quite remarkable to, to find how serene and how radiant he was. What can we learn from him? Do you think what can, what can everybody listening like take from, from how Zach approached all that and dealt with all that? Hmm. Well, I, I learned two things. We, he, he said that there were two, two kind of messages that he wanted to share with people. Uh, the first one was that the importance of 
kindness. You know, mm-hmm. he said that the most when he looked back over his life, the most important aspect was kindness, the kindness that he'd received and the kindness he that he had given. So he was he, he talked a lot about living from the heart and that when you die, all that remains is what's in your heart. All that remains is the kindness that you've shown or received. And he felt that that would determine your experience or his experience after death, what remained in his heart, you know, mm-hmm. the benevolence that he felt. Um, and that was one thing um, that's very important. He also talks about the importance of experience, about not, not procrastinating. He said that human beings just waste so much time. You know, we forget that time is a limited resource. Mm-hmm. And that we just procrastinate and waste time doing trivial things, talking about trivial things. So he was really aware of the importance of utilizing the limited time we have to gain experiences and to do positive things in the world. Yeah. So that's that's what's remained with me. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's good advice. What would you say is the most profound thing that that he said, or the most memorable? Was it was it that the stuff that you just said, or was there something else? Um, the most, I think for me, the most profound thing, it wasn't so much what he said, it was his attitude. Mm-hmm. It was his, his attitude of acceptance and surrender. It was so profound that, you know, we live in a culture which denies death and which tries to postpone or even tries to repress or eliminate death. Yeah. But he was somebody who just entirely accepted the fact that death is real death will happen it will come to us all you know it came to him sooner than other people maybe sooner than even he would have liked but you know we're all gonna have to we're all gonna be in the same position at some point we're, we're, all, we're we all have to face death at some point we all have to ideally face it with acceptance and serenity as zach did yeah yeah again such a powerful conversation um have you uh have you experienced any kind of after death communication or or anything at all from from zach since he transitioned have, have you felt anything i haven't no no i i've, I've had one or two experiences in other contexts but not with zach yeah it, would you be okay to share one of your other experiences in in terms of after death communication yeah well i mean a lot of I've done some research on after death communications. So I used to be skeptical about the idea of life after death. You yeah, know, me too. <laughs> I, I was until a few years ago. I was skeptical until I started looking at the evidence and the research. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Uh, I was always open to the idea that you know that there was something kind of essential, some kind of spiritual essence within me that would survive, but not my personality or identity. Mm-hmm. Um, but now I think it's very likely that personal identity does survive death. Just based on, just purely based on evidence, you know, and uh, yeah, I've had some some experiences. For example, not long after my grandfather died, it was probably a few months after he died, um, I saw him in a dream, and it was so vivid that you know it wasn't just a, a, a hallucinatory dream. It sort of conveyed a, a powerful sense of reality, mm. and and I had a, I sort of had a chat with him in my dream. <laughs> It was quite trivial, you know. My, my grandfather was like a—he was a real ladies' man. He had like always had like two or three girlfriends at the same time. <laughs> so I said to him, "I said, oh, you know, how are you? You know, what's it like? You know, in in the afterworld?" And and he said, "Yeah, it's you know, I'm I'm enjoying myself. I've still got I've got two girlfriends at the moment. 
and it, it seems true but it was it was so kind of real and so powerful that i i was definitely left with the sense that you know he was still extant he was still you know conscious in a, in a different some sort of different form or different level of reality yeah yeah wow um unfortunately i haven't had any kind of definitive experiences that, that i can hold on to but like you said it's once i started doing the research i kind of my my opinions on the whole matter started to shift um for the for the rest of the our time i think i'm gonna have to kind of wear for the steam through questions a little bit um because i got quite a few i want to get to and we'll just kind of see how many we can do in in our remaining time it's a bit kind of quick fire even though most of them are going to be the kind of questions that we could discuss for like an hour um if if, if we had the time mm-hmm. um what does your theory your, your book your theory about connection tell us about organized religion hmm it, yeah, I mean, my attitude to organised religion is quite negative. Uh, I think it's it's quite you know it's it's in some ways it's based on disconnection. I mean, I think any ideology uh, involves disconnection. Ideology, you know, creates a kind of abstraction. It's a kind of like a you know belief systems are conceptual, uh, abstract conceptual set systems which separate us from reality. You know, we we perceive reality through the filter of our belief systems. So it's, it's you know the, the best thing is to do away with any belief system and just try to try to perceive reality in a more raw and unfiltered way. Yeah, I guess one way to to convince a religious person to do that, or somebody that follows organized religion, would be to say that if your religion is is true and and the right thing, then you're going to come back to that naturally once you strip away your allegiances and you begin to explore. You're gonna you're gonna yeah reconnect with it anyway if it's if it's the the yeah the the true source or whatever um yeah what about your thoughts in brief on consciousness you've kind of alluded to the fact already that you're pretty convinced that it's fundamental it's like in in everything it, it, is there anything else you want to say about it yeah just in a nutshell yeah you, you could say that consciousness is the fundamental ground reality of the universe and our own consciousness is an influx of the consciousness of the universe so I don't think many people assume that the brain produces consciousness, but I don't think it does. I think that consciousness flows through the brain. I think the brain is a kind of receiver and yeah. transmitter of consciousness. And the, the primary purpose of the brain is to pick up consciousness and allow it to enter our own being. And that's why, you know, so many mystics or so many spiritual experiences report that feeling of unity, you know, the feeling that your own consciousness partakes in the consciousness of something more fundamental that you are one with the universe so i mean that's that is a basic fact that our own consciousness is one with the consciousness of the universe yeah so i mean again in that sense of course all plants all animals everything has consciousness within it but what are your thoughts on like um conscious experience of animals and trees and plants and things like that like do do you think there there are varying levels of conscious experience yeah Um, yeah yeah definitely yeah i think I think it depends on the complexity, the physical complexity of any living being. Yeah, the There's a correlation. Yeah, the, the, how complex the receiver is. I mean, obviously, the, the human brain is the most complex organ or object in the universe. I mean, there are, there are other animals with highly complex brains too, like dolphins or whales. So they are probably extremely intensely conscious too. But then you have less physically complex animals or beings, sort of insects or worms. So they, they probably have a, a lower level of consciousness simply because their receiver does not you know allow them to experience an intense consciousness 
What about your thoughts in brief on psi phenomena? I'm very open to psi phenomena. Again, it's based on research. You know, um, many people are closed-minded about psi phenomena, but I think there's so much evidence. I used evidence. to be very much. <laughs> Sorry? I used to be very much closed-minded to it. Again, like we yeah. said earlier, before I started looking at the evidence. Yeah, the yeah. evidence is pretty convincing. I mean, unfortunately, psi phenomena don't work so well in laboratory situations. They're a bit like, I think of psi phenomena as a bit like poetry. You know, you can't put a poetry, a poet in a laboratory and say, okay, write a poem now. Yeah, you may try to, but it will probably be a pretty poor poem. But, you know, the, the, the kind of abilities which are unusual and, and which arise in certain situations spontaneously, you know, like creativity arranges sponta arises spontaneously. So you've got to be in the right mood. You've got to be in a relaxed frame of mind in order to manifest psi abilities, which you're not when you're in a laboratory. But even so, laboratory experiments do show kind of, you know, some significant results. Yeah. Well, I mean, the anecdotal evidence is incredibly strong, too. There are so many well-attested cases of um, psi phenomena, precogn precognition, mm. telepathy, you know, which are, also, which are also evidential, even though they're not laboratory experiments. Yeah. And I guess with the laboratory experiments, even though it shows like a small, maybe a, a, a low kind of strength of, of ability, it shows, I think, a pretty consistent um thing there a pretty consistent but ground level like base level of it which yeah. i think yeah is significant i think i think it's essentially proven now even though it's totally not accepted by the oh, yeah the, the wider community and most scientists but i think it is essentially proven really if the evidence yeah, is there the effects have been so consistent over so many years uh, you know in the most stringent laboratory situations mm. so yeah I, I agree with you i think it's basically you know been proven yeah yeah um and how would you define deep empathy? This is something that was mentioned in your book, uh, Disconnected. And I just wanted you to yeah, quickly give a definition of deep empathy. And I wonder whether it could be, in essence, uh, another form of psi phenomena, whether we could kind of bundle it in with mm, that in a, in, mm. a, in a way. Good point. Yeah, it could even be seen as a kind of spiritual experience. Yeah. But, but deep empathy, you know, empathy is often seen as a, a kind of cognitive ability, the ability mm. to put yourself in someone's shoes, to see the world from their perspective. You know, anybody can do that. You know, a psychopath can do that. You can sort of try to imagine what another person may be experiencing. But deep empathy is much more profound. It's, it's actually sensing, feeling the experiences of another person. It's actually sharing their mental space, sharing their identity even. And it's quite normal. It's quite routine experiencing. People sometimes say that autistic people uh, are not capable of empathy. But I think autistic people often find it difficult to to kind of imagine, take other people's perspective in that kind of, uh, in terms of cognitive empathy, but they, they are certainly able to feel deep empathy. You know, that's, that's quite common for autistic people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, have you, other than the ones you've already kind of spoken about, like your spiritual experiences when you were, when you were younger, have you had any other extraordinary or anomalous experiences that, that, you know, that, what am I trying to say? Just have you had any other anomalous or extraordinary experiences? Things like, you know, a, an extraordinary UFO sighting or other after-death communications, a near-death experience, out-of-body experience, precognitive dream, all these, anything along these lines, a, a, an evidential reading from a medium, um, yeah, anything like these. I've had, I've had precognitive dreams, but my, like a lot of precognitive dreams, precognition is quite weird because it either, either seems to be relating to something incredibly important, like some kind of disaster or some major crisis mm. or something incredibly trivial. So yeah. my, my precognitive dreams have tend to be incredibly trivial. <laughs> so, and they tend to be based on sport for some bizarre reason. So 
I've had bizarre dreams where I've predicted the scores of football matches. Really? There was, a, there was a time, there was a football match about 20 years ago when England beat Germany 5-0, uh, which was like the first time Germany had been beaten for many years and the first time in England had beat them by more than one goal for decades or something. But yeah. anyway, I had, a, I had a dream about the match. I'd arranged to go and watch it at my friend's house. And the night before, I had a dream. And in my dream, we were watching the, the TV and the score said, England 4, Germany 0. I thought, wow. That, that, Anyway, I told my friend about it and he said, well, you're joking, that can't happen. But anyway, then it, we were watching the match and, the, and then I saw England 4, Germany 0. I thought, wow, this is my dream. So, yeah, I had a couple of dreams like that. And one occasion I tried to put a bet on it because I was... Yeah, so... I was going to say, tell me next time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, it's a long story, but I couldn't put a bet on it in the end. But yeah, just I've had trivial precognitive experiences like that. Uh, I've had a couple, some very powerful spiritual experiences when I felt as though I've left my body infused with uh, a kind of a fundamental harmony or a, a fundamental bliss um, of the universe. Once I, you know, when, when I mentioned before I was, I was, I used to be a musician. Yeah. And like a lot of musicians, I lived a quite kind of hedonistic life, lots of drinking and smoking. And I kind of went astray for a few years and forgot about spirituality and got immersed in that kind of lifestyle. Uh, in my 20s but one one night i sort of i think we'd had a gig with my band and we sort of got drunk as usual and got to bed about four in the morning and i just woke up a couple of hours later in the darkness and i was completely sober and completely clear and it was the most blissful experience i'd ever had i felt like i was just sort of floating through space i was completely conscious it wasn't a hallucination i was completely incredibly clearly conscious but I felt this kind of oneness with the whole universe. I felt as I was kind of floating on this waves of waves of bliss. And I knew that this was the fundamental reality of the universe, that harmony and bliss was the essence of reality. And it was such a kind of liberating, uh, reassuring experience that it kind of stayed with me for days. I felt I was like floating on air for days afterwards. And, wow. And I kind of, it faded away for a while. But I think what it was, was it was, it was kind of like, you know, it was calling me back towards that kind of spiritual side of my my being, which had become alienated from. Yeah. So my yeah. life began to sort of reorientate itself back towards spirituality after that. Yeah. Wow. You said you can probably hear my dog barking in the background. Uh -huh. I don't know what he's going on about. Um, you said during that, um, the, the, the you tried to put a bet on, but you couldn't. Do you remember if on if on that occasion? Um, the 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 score came in like that was it as you predicted as your dream predicted mm -hmm. oh yeah yeah that was um this was one of many many years ago i used to work at uh, a football ground selling fanzines for my brother yeah at manchester united we used to work at the manchester united's ground um and i just again i had a dream the night before the match i think manchester united were playing arsenal and i had a dream that Manchester United would get, it would be nil-nil, but Manchester United would get a penalty in injury time and they would win one-nil. And this guy, Rude van Nistelrooy, the player, would score the penalty. Yeah. 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 But anyway, so we were there selling the, the fanzines and it, it happened exactly as my dream predicted. Uh, I told all my, my colleagues about it, my fellow magazine sellers. So they were, they were calling me Psychic Steve. <laughs> but anyway, I, I did go to I did go to the betting shop and try to put bet on, but the guy said no. This was a different era, you know, before betting was as prevalent as it is now. They said no, we 
we can't put bets on penalties about whether I want to say I want to bet that there will be a penalty in injury time. He said, "No, we can't do that. We can just we just bet on scores." So I did. Yeah. In the end, <laughs> nowadays, yeah, you could go into the shop and probably put it on the, the specific player to score at the specific minute and everything like that. Yeah, um, it was more difficult in those days. Yeah, well, you'll have to let me know if you have another score predicting dream. Um, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. And I'll put a little bet on. Um, just a, a real quick question. It's just a, it kind of, I was thinking about it while you were answering that. It just popped into my head. Are you able to lucid dream at will? Is that something you do or? No, I mean, I've had a couple of lucid dreams, but not, not at will. I know, I know, okay. I know people who've sort of, who have learned to cultivate it, but I've not, yeah. I've not tried that yet. Have you, have you, are you able to do that? I've, I had one lucid dream. I definitely can't do it at will. Um, mm-hmm. I've spoken to like Robert Wagner, who's written a few books on it. And uh, I've spoken to him twice now. I, I had one after I spoke to him the first time. And then, but I, I haven't really committed to doing the techniques and stuff to try and mm-hmm. induce it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I do want to try and do that more because it does, uh, it, it does, seems incredible. He meditates in his lucid dreams and all sorts and has like deep spiritual experiences in his lucid dream um oh wow it's 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 pretty wild stuff actually it seems like there's a whole pandora's box there that could be you know untapped potential there of stuff we can do and, wow. and it's not it's not even like oh, i'm too busy to lose a dream because i'm just asleep right so i just need to to figure out how to be able to do it on command um I guess the last question yeah, I'm going to ask you before I before I just ask you for a few words, a message to to round us out is just going to be based on. So I'll kind of lead up to it. So you've written plenty of brilliant articles for Psychology Today and what's it, the other magazine you write for, a website you write for? What's the uh, the Conversation? Yeah, I guess the Conversation, uh, I, Psychology Today, and maybe there's another one as well. But anyway, uh, yeah. So sometimes um, for scientific scientific american scientific american i guess yeah that's the one that's on my mind yeah i've written, I've written articles for scientific american yeah 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 so you've written some brilliant articles about um matters pertaining to to death and survival after death um you obviously wrote your essay for the bigelow institute of consciousness studies which received an honorable mention um so you you know quite a lot a bit about this and and i your conclusion is clearly survival you mentioned earlier that you do think we retain mm-hmm. at least some level of personality can you give more information in terms of what you think happens after we die what exactly do we retain what what does that what is that process like in your again i know we're in speculation land but what, what are you what are your thoughts on that mm, it, it's quite difficult to just to to describe mm-hmm. but it seems as though you know we do retain many of our personality traits but it seems as though life or the the next life is different in some fundamental ways it seems to be lighter in some way more subtle i mean you know many spiritual traditions or esoteric traditions talk about a subtle body Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it does seem to be the case that once we lose the physical, this kind of dense physical body, there is some kind of subtle body, astral body, that some people use that term, which survives. And Zach used to say this. Zach said, based on his experience, that life in the next dimension would be easier. You know, that this this level of existence is quite dense and it involves mm-hmm. a lot of suffering. So I think that's one reason why Zach was so happy to go because he knew that the next life would be would involve less suffering. It would be lighter freer um in this kind of more subtle dimension so i I think you know it's difficult to say exactly what will happen but i'm sure that life will be easier and sort of lighter maybe more more naturally spiritual yeah 
Yeah. And hopefully, yeah, like you say, less suffering. Um, do you put any weight into the idea of karma? Do you think that that is something that happens in reality? I, obviously, again, I know we're kind of, we don't know. You, you mm. don't, I'm not, I'm not coming to you. As, oh, Steve, give me the, the, the true answers here. But what are your thoughts on that? Like karma? I'm not sure really. I, I know that many people who have near-death experiences, they say that they become aware of every single negative behavior they've enacted. Mm-hmm. Uh, they really feel it as a strong kind of force, the negativity of it, you know, whereas they feel the energy of the positive actions that they've created. And again, Zach mentioned that. He mentioned that when you die, all that matters is what's in your heart, whether it's benevolence or kindness. So in that sense, you know, I think it may have an effect, but I'm not sure whether there is a direct connection between our previous actions and the actions that occur or, or the kind of... I see um, what you're saying. It could influence it in some naturalistic fashion, but it's not... Yeah, there's nobody like looking at scorecards and stuff no, like that. No, I don't think there's a direct causal connection. No, no. Um, and I guess one thing that kind of, I, it, it kind of aligns with what you just mentioned about Zach saying in terms of taking what's in our heart is like in some of the cases of reincarnation that they've looked into at, at the Division of Perceptual Studies, like it seems like sometimes negative emotions can carry over too like you know you can take anger with you uh, or, or mm, a grudge mm. and things like that which kind of goes against like a popular you know the, the popular way of thinking of that it's all blissful and it's all good and there's no negative yeah uh, yeah yeah i don't really know what to do with that thought um other than just it must be some kind of naturalistic process whichever way it, it goes yeah I think in some ways, um, life after death may not be so different from this life, apart from the fact that it may be more kind of subtle and and lighter, with less suffering. But I mean, many indigenous groups take life after death for granted, but they don't see it as a kind of paradise or heaven. They see it as a fairly mundane affair. That they they think their their ancestors are living all around them in a different dimension. Yeah, you know, living in a similar way in a different realm. Yeah. I, I should have uh, given you a heads up and I should have tried to, to, we could have like rounded it out with you doing a little meditation, but I haven't given you any warning. We probably haven't oh. really got time left anyway, but maybe in the future. And if anybody does want to, you know, listen to a guided meditation that you've done, check out Steve's podcast, The Clear Light. I'll put the link in the description of this along with your books and everything like that. Um, but look, are there any kind of last words, a message you want to leave with people that have watched and listened? Um. Only that, um, you know, I think we, we all have responsibility, you know, um, in relation to the human race's future, not just in terms of our direct behavior, but also in terms of our own personal development. You know, I really do think that we are all interconnected on a, on a fundamental level. So how, you know, the, the, the development that we undergo as individuals contributes to the development of our species. So as we become individually more connected, more empathic, more spiritual, more compassionate that helps a whole species to to move in that direction too mm. so you know without wishing to put pressure on people i do think you know we do carry this responsibility and power as well this power to create change in the in the collective consciousness of the human race absolutely and and people need to feel like yeah they're they're, they're small little one person can make a difference right yeah the biggest fallacy is that we are individuals we're not individuals you know we're all interconnected and we influence the whole yeah and like we said earlier a smile spreads so it's something little and it, it can it can snowball from there thank you so much for this today steve i really really appreciate you giving me your time and i've really enjoyed You're talking welcome. to you your book again uh disconnected 
brilliant book. I hope everybody will read it and the link will be in the description. Yeah, much appreciated and, and I wish you all my best. Yeah, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Steve Taylor. I hope you enjoyed it and resonated with it. Please see the description for relevant links, including to Steve's latest book, Disconnected. If you're enjoying our channel, please subscribe to continue unraveling the universe with us. And if you want to help us keep making content, please consider contributing a small amount via Patreon. Thank you.